DTA Live Radio. Know your culture. Know your culture. Know your culture. Know your culture. This is DJ Afifa, and you're listening to Don't Forget Your Culture on ETA Live Radio. Welcome back, everyone, to DTA Live Radio for Don't Forget Your Culture. I am honored and incensed with adoration to have Professor Shepard here on DTA Live Radio in conversation with you, all the way from the lovely island of Jamaica. <laughs> For those of you who may not be aware, Professor Vereen Shepard is a Jamaican historian and scholar activist. She is currently the director of the Center for Reparation Research at the University of the West Indies as well as a vice chair of the United Nations Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. She is a renowned and eminent expert in the field of 19th century immigration history in the Caribbean. Professor Shepard has also done extensive and seminal research on Jamaican economic history during slavery, migration, and the diaspora. She also, might I add, has done a lot of work on Caribbean women's history. And in her commitment to public service and activism, she promotes awareness to the transformation of social relations regarding gender. So Professor Shepard, welcome here to DTA Live Radio. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Let me greet your greet audience. Your audience. audience.
the extensive work that you've done relatable to a non-specialist audience who may be interested um, in, in these matters and want to understand these notions of reparations and migration in colonized nations and what that means and unpacking what that looks like. So my first question to you is, can you give a historical context for reparations and explain what it is? All right. Well, the first thing I want to say to you that I did my DNA test and I'm connected on my mother's side to the Tikar people from Cameroon. And so I asked myself, how on earth did Tikar people from Cameroon reach Jamaica? That research tells me that the British and other European nations colonized the Caribbean, took ships to Africa, trafficked Africans to this part of the world. And that's why I am here along with so many people of African descent in this part of the world. So therefore, somebody is responsible for this and somebody has to make amends and repair the wrong of that. So reparation is, is about redressing a wrong which has been done and removing the long-term effects of that wrong or crime upon the victims and their descendants. If you commit a crime, you either do the time or you pay for that crime. Isn't that how it goes? <laughs> so, so in its simplest form, that's what it is. And that's why I am in this work. For those who are interested in the archives of this matter, is there a legal precedence in the archive that makes an argument for what you've just said? Of course, there's precedent. The, the Jews got reparation for the Holocaust, six million Jews. And we're talking about, in the case of African people, we don't even know the figure because sometimes they destroyed the records. So people use 12 million, people use 15 million, people go up to 200 million. Even if it was 1 million, it was wrong. And so the precedent is the Jews. We have even had um, reparation for World War um, One and Two crimes. And remember, don't forget, France extracted reparation from Haiti because according to them, Haiti had the audacity of taking its freedom, okay? And, and France demanded what in today's money would be over 20 billion US dollars from Haiti, a, a, a young nation that 
claimed its freedom from enslavement and got its independent took its independence from France in 1804 and then France imposed a reparation claim on Haiti saying that Haiti denied them of their wealth from the labor of, of enslaved Africans. Haiti didn't pay off that loan that it took to pay this debt that France imposed until 1947. So reparation has been paid to everyone else except black people in the Caribbean and in the UK. And the nearest we have come to it in terms of black people is the Mau Mau. And yet, and in that case, of course, they said only the living people. And the UK High Commissioner in Jamaica has actually said that monetary compensation is not on the agenda in the UK, you know, because they don't pay for dead people. If they commit some kind of wrong now, maybe, but not for, um, you know, dead people. We don't agree with that. We think that reparation is due um, because a crime was committed against black people. And that is our position and that's why we're in the movement. In your role um, as the director for the Center for, of the Reparation Research Department at the University of the West Indies, and in your role um, and in the United Nations, would you say that um, a part of your, how should I say, magic, is to not only allow people to hear what is going on in regards to rep um, reparations, but also allow people to do something about that. Would you say? Yes, this Center for Reparation was established in, it, it was launched in 2017, the third anniversary is coming up on October 11. And the heads of government of, of CARICOM um, mandated the University of the West Indies to establish it so that it could engage in research about this crime and also advocacy. So we have a network of scholars and all these scholars are engaged in research and advocacy. So we do the research, but we disseminate our research and we go out in the public. Well, COVID-19 has made sure that we can't go out too much, but we use um, you know, webinars to teach um, school children. And I also have a radio program I have a segment in that program called Reparation Corner so that we can expose the crimes against our people and, and, and try to get, uh, as Peter Tosh said, we need, we need more, more soldiers in the army. And we have enough evidence now against Britain that Britain owes people in the Caribbean for it's the trafficking of enslaved Africans, the brutality of plantation slavery, and they, they refusal to pay compensation. They paid compensation to the British planters, 20 million pounds plus 27 more million pounds through this scam called the apprenticeship system, which is four years after um, emancipation. They said, well, you people not ready yet to <laughs> take four more years to learn to be free. These are people who are free in their, in their homeland, enslaved on this side, and told you need more, some more time to, to learn to, to, to work for wages and, and so on. So the scam. So that's what they got, their planters got. And Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams, who was Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, but published that book in 1944. He, was an, you know, he went to Oxford University. And he showed, his book has evidence that it was all resources, African resources, Caribbean resources, 
that developed Britain. So Britain continues to benefit it, developed on the, our backs, and now it refuses to participate in development in the Caribbean. Mm. Crime was committed and we are holding Britain responsible for our underdevelopment. Until the philosophy which old one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned everywhere is war it's a war that until they're no longer first class and second class citizens of any nation until the color of a man's skin is of no more significance than the color of his eyes miss a war that until the basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race and it's a war that until that day the dream of lasting peace, world citizenship, rule of international morality, will remaining but a fleeting illusion to be pursued, but never attained. Now And until the ignoble and unhappy regime that hold our brothers in Angola, in Mozambique, South Africa, subhuman bondage have been toppled, totally destroyed. Well, everywhere is war.
you mean what am I coloring and learning at the same time? Has no one told you about the Windrush scandal and what they did to our people and what they might do again to other groups if no one says anything or we all forget? Am I too young for that book? I want to know so it doesn't happen to me. Oh no, it's for six-year-olds and adults too. It's easy to read and the images are fun to colour. Get your copy of the Windrush Time Capsule book on decolonisingthearchive.com. Enjoy! Sci-Fi Hour Every Thursday and Friday at 7pm on DTA Live Radio. DTA Live Radio. Could you tell the audience a little bit more about how we have been, um, barriers have been thrown in our ways in towards our development, hence the reason for migration, which subsequently happened in later years, um, as we saw with the Windrush. Could you give us a little bit more about the underdevelopment of nations? I'm glad you, me- I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Windrush issue, because having devastated the region and left our people poor and escaped after emancipation with our wealth, many of our people had to seek somewhere else to go in order to make a living. Some went to Panama, um, some went to the United States of America, to Canada, but a lot of them went to the United Kingdom because they mistakenly believed that Britain was the mother country. No mother treats her children the way Britain has treated the Caribbean. But they thought they had this loyalty to Mother England, went there and look how they have been treated. But back, back here in the Caribbean, the legacies of enslavement are still obvious in poor social infrastructure, poor education system, poor health system. And I remember um, when one of our leaders went to Britain in the 60s to negotiate this this golden handshake I'm talking about. I think he said only there was space in school in the 1960 for only about 7% of school age children, right? And so you can imagine if that was 1960, how bad it was before. And post-independence governments have tried their best to clean up the colonial mess left by Britain and other European countries here because Britain was not the only country that trafficked Africans to the Caribbean. All of them were involved. We have about 12 nations now that we have found. So education was poor. Not many people had access. The early teachers were racist and tried to tell black people that they're not good enough, that Africa is a backward place. And African civilization was superior to European civilization until they went there and mashed up the place. And, you know, roads were poor, bridges, um, transportation. They just left us underdeveloped because they didn't give money to carry on after they left and they extracted our wealth. So, they, so they, according to um, Eric Williams, um, his daughter, Erica Williams Connell, said this on my program, Talking History, just last week. She said, prior to Trinidad and Tobago's independence in 1962, the British offered a golden handshake as they did to all 
their newly departing colonies. But there was a caveat. The money had to be used to buy British goods. Williams was the only post-colonial leader to refuse it, claiming the quantum insufficient. They attached strings and insult and invoking the specter of colonial exploitation and its relationship to the construction of the British economy. And then he said, the West Indies are in the position of an orange. The British have sucked it dry and their sole concern today is that they should not slip and get damaged on the peel. The offer is quite unacceptable and we would prefer not to have it. It amounted to aid to Britain rather than to Trinidad and Tobago. I do not propose to accept any concept of the Commonwealth, which means Commonwealth for Britain and common poverty for us. And that is still the situation today in the so-called Commonwealth. Wealth to Britain, poverty for, other, for other, other nations. And when we look into the evidence of enslavement, we see the brutality that was visited on enslaved African people. I mean, it's, it's, it's really quite atrocious when you look at the evidence. And the evidence is in the archives in Britain. If you go to Kew, the, the, the National Archives there, you'll see all the evidence there, you know? And, you know, we, so we have been trying to, you know, really teach our people the truth about enslavement, about the post-colonial period, and about all that happened to disfigure the Caribbean and put, left us in this situation now that we're trying to come out of. So, you know, you read Orlando Patterson's Sociology of Slavery. You read Mary Prince's journal and all the other bits and pieces that we have, um, you know, as evidence. And you say, how could anyone treat human beings this way? How could anyone treat human beings this way. Quite true, quite true. Um, in keeping with what you've just um, shared with us, Professor Shepard, um, in regards to how we as a, a Caribbean people may conduct ourselves, what positive role could you see the Caribbean playing in addressing the reenactment of violence on African bodies? Not only what we've seen in America, but in other post-colonial states, as you've rightly just mentioned. Um, yeah, what positive role can you see the Caribbean playing in addressing this? Well, the Caribbean has been playing its role ever since. I mean, ever since the period of conquest, colonization and enslavement, our people have, been, have become abolitionists. They were the early abolitionists. In the UK, you all talk about Wilberforce and Newton and, and, and so on. The true abolitionists with boots on the ground fighting for liberation were African people here in the region. We have Sam Sharp, Chief Techie, you know, Eliza Cunningham, all these men and women who were fighting. So the Caribbean has, and Haiti um, in particular, Haiti showed the way other Caribbean countries followed that we have once Haiti got its independence, Haiti said, let me show you all what you have to do. So the Caribbean has been a leader. And right now we're also leading the reparation movement because our governments have come on board to join with civil society. In the UK, you have a movement too. African people are uniting around the world to show that social justice is a must. 
And I mentioned the way in which our ancestors were treated. So yeah, you can understand why they had to rebel, why they had to become revolutionaries, and why right now Caribbean academics are also revolutionary intellectuals. Robert Wedderburn was an enslaved person. He was freed because his father was white, James Wedderburn. And this is how Robert Wedderburn, who eventually ended up in the UK, this is what he left in his book, in his writings. He said, my father's house was full of female slaves, all objects of his lust, among whom he strutted like Solomon in his grand seraglio, or like a bantam cock upon his own dunghill. By him, my mother Rosanna was made the object of his brutal lust. This is what our people went through. And so we are saying we have to be partners with you in the UK in the reparation movement. But other reparation movements have been energized by the Caribbean and they have joined the movement or re-energized or reformed their own committees so that together we can um, succeed. Um, so far, we have written to the British government and the response is negative um, in terms of reparation. But we will not stop because, you know, um, we have to do this on behalf of our ancestors. We have all the evidence. We have ship's papers. We have the trafficking details. We have the name of all the ships that trafficked Africans. I was just looking at the evidence for St. Lucia, you know, and they had names of ships like the Hope, the Rainbow, the Carolina, you know, the, the Bess, the Aurora, the beaver, you know, just, you know, silly names. And we have the places from which they trafficked our, our, our people, you know, West Central Africa, St. Helena, Congo North, Loango. I'm reading from the, 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 the slavevoyages.org um, 2.0 database by David Eltis and his colleagues. And that's what we have. We have all the evidence, you know, and so we are in this movement and we are here to join with um, global advocates. Um, recently, Namibia, Namibia reached out to us because they have a genocidal case going on against Germany. So they were all involved. The Caribbean is leading by a 10 point action plan which has been embraced right around the world. The 10 point action plan is a strategy for reparation. It starts with a full formal apology Indigenous Peoples Development Program, repatriation for those who choose it, the building of cultural institutions, attention to the public health crisis, illiteracy eradication, African knowledge program, psychological rehabilitation, technology transfer, and debt cancellation. That is our blueprint for reparation, and that's what we're leading the way with. Take a good look at me. Yeah, 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 yeah.
For those of you who may have missed the opening segment, we are gifted with the presence of Professor Vereen Shepherd speaking to us all the way from um, Jamaica. And we are speaking um, currently on the issue of reparations. I'm quickly going to now move into another aspect of Professor Shepherd's career. Um, she is a well known writer and she has written quite well-acclaimed books and I have chosen two for us to focus on today in Don't Forget Your Culture because I find that within these books lies a lot of answers for those who need to understand what it is to free your mind. The first book we were looking at it's called The Role of Women and Engendering History, Caribbean Women in Historical Perspectives. I would like for Professor Shepard to share with us um, and our audiences how and why this is so important for us right now when we look at, at the engendering um, of history, Caribbean women and their role. I always remark on what um, Frederick Douglass said when he was talking about the indecency of enslavement and the reason, you know, the reason that, that African people are due um, reparation. And um, I'm looking for the exact quote. When I find it, I will, I, will, I will read it. But I think basically what he was saying is that because of the, because of the treatment of, of enslaved women, 
they actually had to become the leaders of revolutionary movements, you know? Um, so Frederick Douglass, who was an enslaved African in the USA, uh, eventually freed and became a very important writer and speaker. He said, when the true history of the anti-slavery cause shall be written, women will occupy a large space in its pages, but the cause of the slave has been peculiarly woman's cause. What he was trying to say, because of the travails of our women in slavery, which Lucille Matherin Mayer has written about, she has an extensive work, and she was the pioneer of women's history in the Caribbean. And she has outlined the conditions of enslaved African women. And so what Frederick Douglass is saying, once you know that history, you have to understand why women were in the vanguard of the fight for freedom. So engendering history is really a collection of essays by women who have been influenced by Lucille Matherin Mayer and other women who have, and men who have, like Hilary Beckles, who wrote Natural Rebels, you know, to show the ways in which enslaved women tried to topple the slavery system because they, they were doubly exploited, you know, well, maybe triply exploited. They were exploited as field laborers. They were the majority of people in the field. They were the majority of domestic, domestics in the house. And they were the most exposed to rape and, and, and violent punishment. There was a study which just came out um, from, I think, 23andMe or some site like that in the United States, an ancestry type, which showed that in the Caribbean, most women are likely to show, or most black people are likely to show uh, white ancestry than in the United States. Like 24% more, 24 more um, likely to show a, a white father in, in our DNA. And that's because of the, the rape, you know, to which um, people were um, uh, exposed. So this is, this is a reason why I think that we write, you know, we write about, about this thing. Um, I don't know if I can say a certain word on your program, I don't know, <laughs> but maybe. <laughs> go for it, go for it. <laughs> All right, let, let, let me read what Orlando Patterson says, said first about that. Yes. About the abuse of, of women. He says, which, which ties in with what the study in the United States found quantitatively. He said, the sexual exploitation of female slaves by white men was the most disgraceful aspect of Jamaican slave society. Rape and the seduction of infant slaves the ravishing of the common law wives of the male slaves under the threat of punishment and outright sadism, often involving the most heinous forms of sexual torture, was the order of the day. So if it was the order of the day, it means that Jamaica was a place where, where revolutionary movements never stopped until emancipation and independence were achieved. And, you know... <laughs> The other one is, is kind of funny. I think it was Mary Prince, who has been honored. I think there's a monument to her somewhere near University College London now um, because she left the Caribbean. She was taken there by her owners and became a voice for anti-slavery. She said, it was enough to make a nigger wonder. And this is a quotation, is that my words? It was, it was enough to make a nigger wonder if white men didn't know they're born with cocky until they come to the colony. But <laughs> But Negro get to understand that white, white men body in bondage in the mother country 
And when they come to the West Indies, the cocky be the first thing they set free. As for the white woman, she can only turn her eye and sip tea. That's from Mary Prince, the, the history of Mary Prince. I'm saying all that to say, writers who have done the research have shown that colonialism was like a disease in the Caribbean. And we had to get rid of that disease or find ways of treating it. And I repeat, those who committed such atrocities against our ancestors have an obligation to make it right. So my work on gender is really to show that initially the histories that were written about the Caribbean did not include women. And when the 1970s happened and women's history became important and, and, and spread right across the world, historians went back to the archives, especially women historians. They used the same documents the men used and found women's voices there. That's why we honor Lucille Mayer so much. And I, my book on her is just about to be published, um, the biography of Lucille Mastery Mayer, the pioneer of women's history in the Caribbean. So we have, we have looked at their experiences. We have, we have found their voices in anti-slavery. We have looked at the punishments that, to which they were subjected. And we have infused gender analysis into the history of the Caribbean and made it less racist um, as well. Because you know, the way in which subaltern women are, are represented as if they are somehow loose and, and, and they're begging for it. And that's why they police our bodies, they police our hairstyle, they police our dress, um, because it's all about controlling women and controlling women's bodies. And, and because of the, the kind of, sometimes it's a kind of religious, you know, um, a kind of domination of the narrative, you know, about women's subordination. And we have written about how in the post-slavery period, missionaries and planters wanted to turn women into housewives. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, I, that we have in um, two books that, that, that we have on, on women engendering um, Caribbean history, cross-cultural perspectives, and women in Caribbean history. So people can go and find those, um, those books um, and, and have a look at them. I'm going to ask you next about your other book, Maharani's Misery, Narratives of a Passage from India to the Caribbean. I ask because stories are not isolated and it is so important that we learn the art of relating as this is how we truly evolve in our understanding of others and what they have been through. Kindly tell us a little bit about this book and what inspired it. Thank you. Okay, so my first book is called Transient Settlers, The Experience of Indians in Jamaica. So I got, that was for my master's degree. Um, so I've been looking at, I grew up in, in a parish in Jamaica called St. Mary, right? And I grew up in a district which people, it was called, it was on the land title is Hopewell, but people call it Africa because it was infrastructurally challenged and we were all poor people. But it was a multi-ethnic community with Indian people. And my mother used to have to pay for Indian girls to go to school because their fathers would prefer to send the boys and not the girls and so on. So we had, you know, we grew up as a community um, of Indians, mixed race people, black people. And um, so I've got interested in the, in the history and culture of Indians in Jamaica. And then I went to Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana 
And I said, what? I mean, you hardly see, you could go around Jamaica and not see any Indian people. They live in, in those days in, in certain communities where the plantations were because they were imported into the Caribbean from 1838 um, in Chinese earlier, like 1806 in Cuba and Trinidad and Tobago because planters wanted to defeat the emancipatory ambition of black people. So Asian people were not imported to the cabin as contract laborers because there was a shortage of labor as planters wanted to believe. They were imported to flood the labor market, depress wages and defeat the hopes and expectations of black people. Only place I see in the Caribbean that really needed people were the new colonies like Trinidad and Tobago and Guyana. Because if, the plant, if they wanted to continue sugar plantation and black people are saying, um, pay us or we're not coming back, then I suppose they, they had to use other workers. But they didn't have to continue the plantation economy. They could have just gone into something else. So that's how Indians came to the Caribbean. But when I went to Trinidad, and guy and I saw so many people, I thought, wow, I could be in India. So I was curious about it, wrote, wrote that for my thesis and published that book. And then years later, I was doing a textbook for schools, the same women in Caribbean history that I talked about earlier. And uh, I was in the National Archives. I wanted to find examples from across the Caribbean of, as, um, of how women, Indian women were treated. And when I reached the files for Guyana, I came across these 400 pages, they call them folios, of documents about a woman called Maharani. She was like 18 or 20 years old. And she was on a ship to Guyana called the Allen Shaw. And this woman was raped and she died from her wounds and, her, and the trauma. And there were four investigations into what happened to Maharani. They, 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 they charged a black man, but he was eventually released because they said that there was no evidence. They were trying to frame him. But it's, it's, it's somebody, a, a, a white sailor on the ship that did this. But nothing eventually came of it. And Maharani's, but Maharani had told one of her friends when she was in the hospital on the ship, what happened to her. And so this book consists of my own interpretation of the records as part one of the book. But in the second part of the book, I, I, I asked the publisher to include all the testimonies, what Maharani said, what her friends said, what the sailors said, so that it can be a teaching tool and, and students and teachers can look at the appendices, read my, my summary, and see if they agree with my conclusion. So, you know, I did that because the Caribbean is a multi-ethnic space. Um, Indian indentured um, laborers were imported here, first to Guyana, then to other parts of the world in, in Jamaica from 1845. And what I realized is that there was a kind of a unity in how women were regarded. You know, like the subaltern woman, she can't, she can't be raped because she's loose, you know. So they were blaming Maharani like for how she dressed and, 
you know, how she was fraternizing, even though laws, unlike enslaved Africans, laws were there to say sailors should molest um, Indian women. There were no laws protecting our African people on the Middle Passage. But I thought it was interesting to look at how another set of women um, were treated by colonizers. scandal and what they did to our people and what they might do again to other groups if no one says anything or we all forget am i too young for that book i want to know so it doesn't happen to me oh no it's for six-year-olds and adults too it's easy to read and the images are fun to color get your copy of the windrush time capsule book on decolonizingthearchive.com enjoy Every Thursday and Friday at 7 p.m. on DTA Live Radio. You're listening to DTA Live Radio, and we're here with Professor Berene Shepherd. Um, for those of you who've missed out, Professor Shepherd has taken us through the landscape of the origins of reparations, 
the landscape of the influence that colonization has had on um, its colonies and on African bodies. And also we have looked at the influence as well that colonization has had and impacted on other nations and other races. What are African governments saying about this? And what are African and Caribbean governments doing about this in this road for people to return to Africa? Um, should they desire to? What, what amenities are being offered to these people to pave that pathway in a way that is not turbulent? Well, first of all, let me say that um, people from the Caribbean have been going back to Africa for ages, even just after emancipation, you know, um, they have been going back individually, mostly, not as a group. Also, we do have Rastafari, and Rastafari, they are the people leading the repatriation part of reparation. Let me be clear to our, to our audience, our listeners. Reparation, re repatriation is a part of reparation, because reparation is, you know, amends for a crime that was done. And part of that crime is extracting people from their homeland and scattering them all over the world. So Rastafari and other people who believe in repatriation are saying, we have a right to return to our homeland. And so that's the, that's the, that's the third point on the 10-point action plan of CARICOM. We want African nations to stop imposing visas on us. It's on a one-way street. You know, it's not only that, um, you know, we here are yearning to go back. African, African countries also need to step up and ensure that we can go back without feeling as if we're outsiders. I don't know how it is that because you were forcefully evicted from your homeland, you stop becoming an African. Peter Tosh says, as long as you're a black man, and I'm guessing you mean black woman too, you're, you're, you're an African. You know, Kwame Nkrumah says, I'm not African because I was born in Africa. I'm African because African was born in me. We have a right to return. And so it's part of the negotiation. Ghana right now imposes visas on Jamaican people who want to visit Ghana. I refuse to go back there until they lift that. The president has promised. So let us see if that will happen. I would like to laud you, Professor Shepard, because you are actively doing something. And it means so much, especially within the academic space to have someone who is navigating on behalf of people who, as I mentioned earlier, are non-specialists in this area, but at the same time want to learn. They are curious. They don't have enough information to inform them correctly. And so they go about from a space of ignorance and they say things like, you know, very ignorant statements like, oh, why don't black people just help themselves? You know, I don't see what the problem is. There isn't any how can you pull yourself up by your own bootstrap if you don't have no boots? <laughs> that is the line. That is the takeaway line for today. Thank you so much, Professor
DTA Live Radio. We want the right to return, you know, the right to return, not just a visit. We want to visit too, and we want African nations to stop imposing visas on us. It's on a one-way street. It's not only that, um, you know, we here are yearning to go back. African African countries also need to step up and ensure that we can go back without feeling as if we're outsiders. I don't know how it is that because you were forcefully evicted from your homeland, you stop becoming an African. Peter Church says, as long as you're a black man, and I'm guessing you're a black woman too, you're, you're an African, you know? Kwame Nkrumah says, I'm not African because I was born in Africa. I'm African because African was born in me.